Podcastle, episode number 36, for December 9th, 2008. Ancestor Money by Maureen McHugh. Hello, this is Rachel Swarsky, Podcastle's editor. I've recently realized that a lot of my favorite television shows are about death. Six Feet Under follows a family that runs a funeral home. The main character of Dexter is a serial killer. The characters in Dead Like Me exist in a limbo state between life and death, remaining in the living world so they can help escort dying people into the beyond. There's even an old British show called Mulberry that I recently discovered an enthusiasm for, in which Death's son is enduring on-the-job training for his future as the Grim Reaper. Stories about death and the afterlife are fun because they're speculating about what is basically a total unknown. In some ways, they're free of the restraints that bind even other speculative fiction. We know something about how space works, so the boundaries of physics constrain the possibilities of future interstellar empires. But death and the afterlife come to us bearing no facts. They open onto blankness, a canvas upon which we can write our own stories, guided by our beliefs, our religious traditions, our hopes, and our fears. Ancestor Money was written by Hugo and Tiptree Award-winning author Maureen McHugh. Maureen's novels include the acclaimed China Mountain Zhang, Half the Day is Night, Mission Child, and Necropolis of Mothers and Other Monsters was released by Small Beer Press in 2005. Like her other work, it's available on Amazon.com. Ancestor Money first appeared on SciFiction.com. It's read for us by Diane Severson, a frequent narrator for Tony Smith's science fiction and fantasy podcast Starship Sofa, which you can find at StarshipSofa.com. Diane has lived for the past 16 years in Germany. She's a professional classical singer, specializing in Baroque, medieval, and contemporary music. You can listen to some of her singing at myspace.com slash Soprano, and listen to or buy her CD Silence at cdbaby.com slash dsmg. Her blog is divadianes.blogspot.com. Links in this introduction are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story! Ancestor Money by Maureen F. McHugh In the afterlife, Rachel lived alone. She had a clapboard cabin and a yard full of gray geese which she could feed or not, and they would do fine. Purple morning glories grew by the kitchen door. It was always an early summer morning and had been since her death. At first, she had wondered if this were some sort of Catholic afterlife, she neither felt the presence of God nor missed his absence, but in the stasis of this summer morning it was difficult to wonder or worry year after year. The honking geese told her someone was coming. Geese were better than dogs and maybe meaner. It was speed. Rachel? he called from the fence. She had barely known speed in life. He was her husband's uncle and not a person she had liked or approved of but she had come to enjoy his company when she no longer had to fear sin or bad companions. Rachel, he said, you've got mail from China. She came and stood in the doorway, shading her eyes from the day. What? she said. 
"'You've got mail from China,' said Speed. He held up an envelope. It was big, made of some stiff red paper, and sealed with a darker red bit of wax. She had never received mail before. "'Where did you get it?' she asked. "'It was in the mailbox at the end of the holler,' Speed said. He said holler for hollow. Speed had a thick brush of wiry black hair that never combed flat without hair grease. "'There's no mailbox there,' she said. "'He is now.' "'Heavens, Speed! Who put you up to this?' she said. "'It's worse than that. No one did. Open it up!' She came down and took it from him. There were Chinese letters going up and down on the left side of the envelope. The stamp was as big as the palm of her hand. It was a white crane flying against a gilt background. Her name was right there in the middle in beautiful black ink. Rachel Ball, born 1892, died 1927, Swan Pond Hollow, Kentucky, United States. Speed was about to have apoplexy, so Rachel put off opening it, turning the envelope over a couple of times. The red paper had a watermark in it of twisting Chinese dragons, barely visible. It was an altogether beautiful object. She opened it with reluctance. Inside it read, Honorable Ancestress of Amelia Shaughnessy, an offering of death money and goods has been made to you at Tin Hao Temple in Yao Ma Te in Hong Kong. If you would like to claim it, please contact us either by letter or phone, HK8-555-4444. There were more Chinese letters, probably saying the same thing. What is it? Speed asked. She showed it to him. Ah, he said. You know about this? she asked. No, he said, except that the Chinese do that ancestor worship. Are you going to call? She went back inside and he followed her. His boots clumped on the floor. She was barefoot and so made no noise. You want some coffee? she asked. No, he said. Are you going to write back? I'm going to call, she said. Alexander Graham Bell had thought that the phone would eventually allow communication with the spirits of the dead, and so the link between the dead and phones had been established. Rachel had a cell phone she had never used. She dialed it now, standing in the middle of her clean kitchen, the hem of her skirt damp from the yard and clinging cool around her calves. The phone rang four times, and then a voice said, Way? Hello? she said. Way, said the voice again. Way? Hello, do you speak English? she said. There was the empty sound of ether in the airwaves. Rachel frowned at speed. Then a voice said, Hello? Yes? Rachel thought it was the same voice, accented but clear. It did not sound human, but had a reedy, hollow quality. This is Rachel Ball. I got an envelope that said I should call this number about, um, she checked the letter, death money. Rachel had not been able to read very well in life, but it was one of those things that had solved itself in the afterlife. Ah, Rachel Ball, 
a moment. Yes, she said. Yes, it is a substantial amount of goods and money. Would you like to claim it? Yes, she said. Hold on, said the voice. She couldn't tell if it was male or female. What's going on? Speed asked. Rachel waved her hand to shush him. Honorable Ancestress, your claim has been recorded. You may come at any time within the next ninety days to claim it, said the strange, reedy voice. Go there? she asked. Yes, said the voice. Can you send it? Alas, said the voice, we cannot. And the connection was closed. Wait, she said. But when she pushed redial, she went directly to voicemail. It was in Chinese. Speed was watching her, thoughtfully. She looked at her bare feet and curled her toes. Are you going to go? Speed asked her. I guess, she said. Do you want to come? I travel too much in life, he said. And that was all. Rachel had never gone more than twenty-five miles from Swan Pond in life and had done less in death. But Speed had been a hobo in the Depression, leaving his wife and kids without a word and traveling the South and the West. Rachel did not understand why Speed was in heaven or why some people were here and some people weren't or where the other people were. She had figured her absence of concern was part of being dead. Rachel had died, probably of complications from meningitis, in 1927 in Swan Pond, Kentucky. She had expected that Robert, her husband, would eventually be reunited with her, but in life Robert had remarried badly and had seven more children, two of whom died young. She saw Robert now and again, and felt nothing but distant affection for him. He had moved on in life, and even in death he was not her Robert any more. But now something flickered in her that was a little like discontent. Amelia Shaughnessy was her granddaughter, child of her third child and second daughter, Evelyn. Amelia had sent her an offering— Rachel touched her fingers to her lips, thinking. She touched her hair. What was it she had talked to on the phone? Some kind of Chinese spirit? Not an angel. I'll tell you about it when I get back, she said. She did not take anything. She did not even close the door. Rachel, Speed said from her door. She stopped with her hand on the gate. Are you going to wear shoes? he asked. Do you think I need them? she asked. He shrugged. The geese were gathered in a soft gray cluster by the garden at the side of the little clapboard cabin where they had been picking among the tomato plants. All their heads were turned towards her. She went out to the gate. The road was full of pale dust like talcum powder, already warmed by the sun. It felt so good she was glad that she hadn't worn shoes. As she walked, she seemed to walk forward in time. She came down and out the hollow, past a white farmhouse with a barn and silo, and a radio in the windsill playing a Reds baseball game against the Padres. A black rambler was parked in the driveway, and laundry hung drying in the breeze, 
white sheets belling out. Where the road met the highway was a neat brick ranch house with a paved driveway and a patient German shepherd lying in the shade under a tree. There was a television antenna like a lightning rod. The German shepherd watched her, but did not bark. She waited at the highway, and after a few minutes saw a greyhound bus coming through the valley, following the Laurel River. She watched it through the curves, listening to the grinding down and back up of its gears. The sign on the front of the bus said Lexington. So that was where she supposed she would go next. The bus stopped in front of her, sighing, and the door opened. By the time she got to Lexington, the bus had modernized. It had a bathroom, and the windows were tinted smoky-colored. Highway 25 had become Interstate 75, and outside the window they were passing horse farms with white board fences rising and falling across blue-green fields. High-headed horses with manes like women's hair that shone in the sun. Airport first, the driver called. Then bus terminal with connections to Cincinnati, New York City, and Sausalito, California. She thought he sounded northern. Rachel stepped down from the bus in front of the terminal. The tarmac was pleasantly warm. As the bus pulled out, the breeze from its passing belled her skirt and tickled the back of her neck. She wondered if perhaps she should have worn a hat. She wasn't afraid. What could happen to her here? She was dead. The bus had left her off in front of glass doors that opened to some invisible prompt. Across a cool, airy space was a counter for Hong Kong air, and behind it, a diminutive Chinese woman in a green suit and a tiny green pillbox cap trimmed with gold. Her name tag said, Jade Girl, but her skin was as white as porcelain teeth. Rachel hesitated for the first time since she had walked away from her own gate. This grandchild of hers who had sent her money, what obligation had she placed on Rachel? For more than seventy years, far longer than she had lived, Rachel had been at peace in her little clapboard house on the creek, up in the hollow. She missed the companionable sound of the geese, and the longing was painful in a way she had forgotten. She was so startled by the emotion that she lifted her hand to her silent heart. "'May I help you?' the woman asked. Wordlessly, Rachel showed her the envelope. "'Mrs. Ball,' the woman behind the counter said, "'your flight is not leaving for a couple of hours, but I have your ticket.' She held out the ticket, a gaudy red plastic thing with golden dragons and black. Rachel took it because it was held out to her. The Chinese woman had beautiful hands, but Rachel had the hands of a woman who gardened, clean, but not manicured or soft. The ticket made something lurch within her, and she was afraid. Afraid? She had not been afraid for more than seventy years, and she was barefoot and hadn't brought a hat. If you would like to shop while you are waiting the woman behind the counter said and gestured with her hand. There were signs above them that said Terminal A gates 1 through 24A with an arrow and Terminal B gates 1 through 15B. There are shops along the concourse, the Chinese woman said. Rachel looked at her ticket. 
Amidst the Chinese letters it said, Gate 4A. She looked back up at the sign. Thank you, she said. The feeling of fear had drained from her like water in sand, and she felt like herself again. What had that been about, she wondered. She followed the arrows to a brightly lit area full of shops. There was a bookshop and a flower shop, a shop with postcards and salt and pepper shakers and stuffed animals. It also had sandals, plastic things in bright colors. Rachel's skirt was pale blue, so she picked a pair of blue ones. They weren't regular sandals. The sign said flip-flops, and they had a strap sort of business that went between the big toe and second toe that felt odd. But she decided if they bothered her too much, she could always carry them. She picked a postcard of a beautiful horse and found a pen on the counter. There was no shop girl. She wrote, Dear Simon, the bus trip was pleasant. That was Speed's actual name. She paused, not sure what else to say. She thought about telling him about the odd sensations she had had at the ticket counter, but didn't know how to explain it. So she just wrote, I will leave for Hong Kong in a few hours. Sincerely, Rachel. She addressed it to Simon Philpot, Swan Pond Hollow. At the door to the shop there was a mailbox on a post. She put the card in and raised the flag. She thought of him getting the card out of the new mailbox at the end of the hollow, and a ghost of the heartsickness stirred within her chest. So she walked away, as she had from her own gate that morning, her new flip-flops snapping a little as she went. Partway down the concourse she thought of something she wanted to add, and turned and went back to the mailbox. She was going to write, I'm not sure about this, but the flag was down, and when she opened the mailbox the card was already gone. There were other people at gate 4A. One of them was Chinese with a blue face and black around his eyes. His eyes were wide, the whites visible all the way around the very black pupils. He wore strange shoes with upturned toes, red leggings, elaborate red armor, and a strange red hat. He was reading a Chinese newspaper. Rachel sat a couple of rows away from the demon. She fanned herself with the beautiful red envelope, although she wasn't warm. There was a TV, and on it a balding man was telling people what they should and should not do. He was some sort of doctor, Dr. Phil. He said oddly rude things, and the people sat, hands folded like children, and nodded. "'Collecting ancestor money?' a man asked. He wore a dark suit, white shirt, and tie, and a fedora. "'My son married a Chinese girl, and every year I have to make this trip,' He smiled. "'You've done this before?' Rachel asked. "'Is it safe?' The man shrugged. "'It's different,' he said. "'I get a new suit. They're great tailors. It's a different afterlife, though. Buddhist and all. Buddhism. Detachment. And for a moment it felt as if everything swirled around her, a moment of vertigo. Rachel found herself unwilling to think about Buddhism.' The man was still talking. You know, I can still feel how strongly my son wants things. The pull of the living and their way of obliging us, he said, and chuckled. Rachel had not felt much obligation to the living for years. 
Of her children, all but two were dead. There was almost no one still alive who remembered her. What about... She pointed at the demon. Don't look at him, the man said quietly. Rachel looked down at her lap, at the envelope and the plastic ticket. I'm not sure I should have come, she said. Most people don't, the man said. What's your seat number? Rachel looked at her ticket. Now, in addition to saying gate 4A, it also said seat 7A. I was hoping we were together, said the man, but I'm afraid I'm 12D. Aisle seat. I prefer the aisle. 7A. That's a window seat. You'll be able to see the stars. She could see the stars at home. There's the plane, he said. She could hear the whine of it, shrill, like metal on metal. It was a big passenger 747, red on top and silver underneath, with a long, swirling gold dragon running the length of the plane. She didn't like it. She stayed with the man with the fedora through boarding. A young man in a golden suit, narrow and perfectly fitted, took their tickets. The young man's name tag said, Golden Boy. His face was as pale as platinum. At the door of the plane there were two women in those beautiful green suits and little pillbox stewardess hats, both identical to the girl at the counter. Standing, Rachel could see that their skirts fell to their ankles, but were slit up one side, almost to the knee. Their name tags both said, Jade Girl. On the plane, the man with the fedora pointed out to Rachel where her seat was. She sat down and looked out the window. In the time they had been waiting for the plane, it had started to get dark, although she could not yet see the first star. They landed in Hong Kong at dawn, coming in low across the harbor, which was smooth and shined like pewter. They came closer and closer to the water until it seemed they were skimming it, and then suddenly there was land and runway and the chirp of their wheels touching down. Rachel's heart gave a painful thump, and she said, oh, quite involuntarily, and put her hand to her chest. Under her hand she felt her heart lurch again, and she gasped. Air filled her quiet lungs until they creaked a bit and found elasticity. Her heart beat and filled her with, she did not know at first with what, and then she realized it was excitement, rising excitement and pleasure and fear in an intoxicating mix. Colors were sharp and when one of the jade girls cracked the door to the plane, the air had an uncertain tang, sweet, and underneath that, a many-people odor, like old socks. "'Welcome to the Flagland Harbor,' the jade girls chorused, their voices so similar that they sounded like a single voice. The man with the fedora passed her, and looked back over his shoulder and smiled. She followed him down the aisle, realizing only after she stood that the demon was now behind her. The demon smelled like wet charcoal, and she could feel the heat of his body as if he were a furnace. She did not look round. Outside, there were steps down to the tarmac, and the heat took her breath away, but a fresh wind blew off the water. Rachel skimmed off her flip-flops so they wouldn't trip her up and went down the stairs to China. A golden boy was waiting for her, as a jade girl had been waiting for the man with the fedora. "'Welcome to Sanqing, the heaven of highest purity,' he said. 
"'I'm supposed to be in Hong Kong,' Rachel said. She dropped her flip-flops and stepped into them. "'This is the afterlife of Hong Kong,' he said. "'Are you here to stay?' "'No,' she said. "'I got a letter.' She showed him the Chinese envelope. "'Ah,' he said. "'Tin Hao Temple. Excellent. And congratulations. "'Would you like a taxi, or would you prefer to take a bus?' The fares will be charged against the monies you collect. Which would you recommend? she asked. On the bus, people may not speak English, he said, so you won't know where to get off, and you would have to change to get to Yao Ma Tai. I recommend a taxi. All right, she said. People wouldn't speak English? Somehow it had never occurred to her. Maybe she should have seen if someone would come with her. This granddaughter. Maybe she had burned ancestor money for Robert as well. Why not? Robert was her grandfather. She didn't know any of them. So why would she favor Rachel? That had been foolish, not checking to see if Robert had wanted to come. He hadn't been on the plane, but maybe he wouldn't come by himself. Maybe he'd gone to find Rachel, and she'd already been gone. She hadn't been lonely before she came here. The golden boy led her through the airport. It was a cavernous space, full of people, all of whom seemed to be shouting. Small women with bowed legs carried string bags full of oranges, and men squatted along the wall, smoking cigarettes and grinning at her as she passed with the golden boy. There were monkeys everywhere, dressed in Chinese gowns and little caps, speaking the same language as the people. Monkeys were behind the counters, and monkeys were pushing carts, and monkeys were hawking Chinese newspapers. Some of the monkeys were tiny black things with wizened white faces and narrow hands, and feet that were as shiny as black patent leather. Some were bigger and waddled, walking on their legs like men. They had stained yellow teeth and fingernails the same color as their hands. They were businesslike. One of the little ones shouted something in Chinese as she passed in a curiously human voice, and then shrieked like an animal burying its teeth at another monkey. She started. The golden boy smiled, unperturbed. Out front, he flagged a taxi. The car that pulled up was yellow with a white top and said Toyota and Crown Comfort on the back. It had pulled past them, and the golden boy grabbed her elbow and hustled her to it. Rachel expected the driver to be a monkey, but he was human. The golden boy leaned into the front seat and shouted at the driver in Chinese. The driver shouted back. Rachel felt exhausted. She should never have come here. Her poor heart. She would go back home. The golden boy opened the back door and bowed to her and walked away. Wait, she called. But he was already inside the airport. The driver said something gruff to her, and she jumped into the taxi. It had red velour seats and smelled strongly of cigarette smoke. The driver swung the car out into traffic so sharply that her door banged shut. A big golden plastic bangle with long red tassels swayed below his mirror. He pointed to it and said, Hong Kong insurance policy, and he smiled at her. Friendly and pleased at his joke, if it was a joke. I've changed my mind, she said. I want to go home. But apparently, Hong Kong insurance policy was most, if not all, of his English. 
He smiled up into his rearview mirror. His teeth were brown, and some were missing. This was not what Rachel thought of as death. The street was full of cars, bicycles, single-piston two-cycle tractors, and palanquins. Her driver swung through and around them. They stopped at one intersection to wait for the light to change. Two men were putting down one of the palanquins. In it was a woman sitting in a chair. The woman put a hand on one of the men's shoulders and stood up carefully. Her gown was a swirl of greenish blues and silvers and golds. Her face was turned away, but she was wearing a hat like a fox's head. There was something about her feet that were odd. They looked no bigger than the palm of a human hand. Rachel thought, she's walking on her toes. The woman looked over towards the taxi, and Rachel saw that it wasn't a hat, that the woman had marvelous golden fox eyes, and that the tip of her tongue protruded from her muzzle dog-like. The light changed, and the taxi accelerated up a hill, pushing Rachel back into her seat, queasy. Narrow streets strung overhead with banners. The smells, dried fish and worse, made Rachel feel more and more sick. Nausea brought with it visceral memories of three years of illness before she died, of confusion and fear and pee in the bed. She had not forgotten before, but she hadn't felt it. Now she felt the memories. The streets were so narrow that the driver's mirror clipped the shoulder of a pedestrian as they passed. The mirror folded in a bit and then snapped out, and the angry, startled cry dopplered behind them. Rachel kept expecting the face of the driver to change, maybe into a pig, or worse, the demon from the plane. The taxi lurched to a stop. "'Okay,' the driver said, and grinned into the mirror. His face was the same human face as when they had started. The red letters on the meter said $72.40, and then they blinked three times and said, zero. When Rachel didn't move, the driver said, "'Okay,' again, and said something in Chinese. She didn't know how to open the car door. He got out and came around and opened the door. She got out. "'Okay,' he said cheerfully, and jumped back in and took off, leaving the smell of exhaust. She was standing in an alley, barely wider than the taxi. Both sides of the alley were long red walls punctuated by wide doors, all closed. A man jogged past her with a long stick over his shoulders, baskets hanging from both ends. The stick was bowed with the weight and flexed with each step. Directly in front of her was a red door set with studs. If she tilted her head back, above the wall she could see a building with curved eaves, rising tier upon tier like some exotic wedding cake. The door opened easily when she pushed on it. Inside was the temple, and in front of it, a slate stone paved courtyard. A huge bronze cauldron filled with sand had incense sticks smoking in it, and she smelled sandalwood. After the relative quiet of the alley, the temple was loud with people. A Chinese band was playing a cacophony of drums and gongs, chong, chong, chang, chong while a woman stood nodding and smiling. The band was clearly playing for her. Rachel didn't think the music sounded very musical. There were red pillars holding up the eaves of the temple. 
and the whole front of the building was open, so that the courtyard simply became the temple. Inside was dim, and smelled even more strongly of sandalwood. A huge curl of the incense hung down in a cone from the ceiling. The inside of the temple was full of birds, not the pleasant, comforting, and domestic animals her geese were. They had long, sweeping tails and sharply pointed wings, and they flickered from ground to eaves and watched with bright, black, reptilian eyes. People ignored them. A man in a narrow white suit came up to her, talking to the air in Chinese. He was wearing sunglasses. It took her a moment to realize that he was not talking to some unseen spirit, but was wearing a headset for a cell phone, most of which was invisible in his jet-black hair. He pushed the mic down away from his face a little and addressed her in Chinese. "'Do you speak English?' she asked. She had not gotten accustomed to this hammering heart of hers. "'No English,' he said, and said some more in Chinese. The envelope and letter had Chinese letters on it. She handed it to him. After she handed it to him, it occurred to her that she didn't know if he had anything to do with the temple, or if he was, perhaps, some sort of confidence man. He pulled the sunglasses down his nose and looked over them to read the letter. His lips moved slightly as he read. He pulled the mic back up and said something into it, then pulled a thin cell phone no bigger than a business card and tapped some numbers out with his thumb. "'Way!' he shouted into the phone. He handed her back the letter and beckoned for her to follow, then crossed the temple, walking fast and weaving between people without seeming to have had to adjust. Rachel had to trot to keep up with him, nearly stepping out of her foolish flip-flops. In an alcove off to one side, the wall was painted with a mural of the Hong Kong street with cars and buses and red and white taxis, traffic lights and crosswalks. But no jade girls or fox-headed women, no palanquins or tractors. Everything in it looked very contemporary. The light reflected off the plate-glass windows, the briefcases and fur coats. As contemporary as the white-suited man, the man held up his hand that she was to wait here. He disappeared back into the crowd. She thought about going back out, and getting in a taxi, and going back to the airport. Would she need money? She hadn't needed money to get here, although they had told her that the amount of the taxi had been subtracted from her money. Did she have enough to get back? What if she had to stay here? What would she do? An old woman in a grey tunic and black pants said, "'Rachel Ball?' "'Yes.' "'I am Miss Lily. I speak English. I can help you,' the woman said. "'May I see your notification?' Rachel did not know what a notification was. "'All I have is this letter,' she said. The letter had marks from handling, as if her hands had been moist. "'What place was this where the dead perspired?' "'Ah,' said Miss Lily. "'That is it. Very good.' "'Would you like your money in bills or in a debit card?' "'Is it enough to get me home?' Rachel asked. "'Oh, yes,' Miss Lily said. "'Much more than that.' "'Bills,' Rachel said. "'She did not care about debit cards.' "'Very good,' said Miss Lily. 
And would you like to make arrangements to sell your goods, or will you be shipping them? What do people do with the money? Rachel asked. They use it to buy things, to buy food and goods, just as they do in life. You are a Christian, aren't you? Baptist, Rachel said. But is this all there is for Chinese people after they die? The same as being alive? What happens to people who have no money? People who have no money have nothing, said Miss Lily. So they have to work. But this is the first of the seven heavens. People who are good here progress up through the heavens. And if they continue, they will eventually reach a state of what you would call transcendence, what we call the three realms, when they are beyond this illusion of matter. Can they die here? Miss Lily inclined her head. Not die, but if they do not progress, they can go into the seven hells. But I have enough money to get back home, Rachel said, and if I left you the rest of it, the money and the goods, could you give it to someone here who needs it? At home you will not progress, Miss Lily said gently. That stopped Rachel. She would go back to her little clapboard cabin and her geese, and everything would become as timeless as it had been before. Here she would progress. Progress for what? She was dead. So the dead here progressed, and eventually they stopped progressing. Death is eternity. She had been dead for over seventy years, and she would be dead forever and ever. Dead longer than those buried in the tombs of Egypt, where the dead had been prepared for an afterlife as elaborate as this one. In her mind, forever spread back and forward through the epochs of dinosaurs, her time of seventy years getting smaller and smaller in proportion, through the four billion years of the earth, and still farther back and forward through the time it took the pinwheel galaxy to turn, the huge span of a galactic day and a galactic year in which everything recognizable grew dwarfed, and she would be dead. Progress meant nothing. It made no difference what she chose. And she was back at her gate in Swan Pond, standing in the talcum dust, and it was no difference if this was 1927 or 2003 or 10,358. Hong Kong left behind in the blink of an eye. She wasn't surprised. In front of her was the empty clapboard cabin, no longer white-painted and tidy, but satiny gray with age. The windows were empty of glass and curtains, and under a lowering evening sky a wind rhythmically slapped a shutter against the abandoned house. The tomatoes were gone to weeds, and there were no geese to greet her. And it did not matter. A great calm settled over her, and her unruly heart quieted in her chest. Everything was still. Episode number 33 was Jeremiah Talbert's The Girl with the Sun in Her Head. On the board, Zothra said, I really liked this one. Excellent job all around. And Itant said, I absolutely adore this story, especially the ending. I often rail here about unresolved loose ends, but here's an ending which demonstrates exactly the right way to do ambiguity. Instead of leaving me grasping for answers, it left me satisfied that the world is full of wonder and mystery and that I don't need to understand it in order to appreciate. 
Ragtime was ambivalent about the story and said, My biggest problem was that with two characters named Negro and Blanco, black and white, I was afraid that our heroine with the yellow crayon was actually named Amaria, yellow, and the reader was mispronouncing it. Now that I see that she wasn't, I'm wondering why the author didn't name her Amaria. On the blog, Scatterbrain had a stronger reaction. For such an excellent setup, Talbert executes the story in a hollow, patchy, and unfantastical fashion, leading to a huge misfire of the plot, especially of the ending, as well as characterization and the story's moral learnings. If you've got an opinion, come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and share it with us. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Charles Dudley Warner said, It is fortunate that each generation does not comprehend its own ignorance. We are thus enabled to call our ancestors barbarous. Barbarous.